scripture reading comes from the book of 1 Samuel, and we will be in chapter 13 and be reading verses 5 through 14. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They come up, they came up and encamped at Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgah, and all the people followed him trembling. He waited seven days, the appointed time by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgah, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me, and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, When I saw the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgah, and I have not sought favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning again to everybody, and good morning to those tuning in online, either through our podcast or through Facebook Live. Uh, For those who do not know me, my name is Patrick. I am the pastor here at Christ the Word Church, and we're glad that every single one of you, including Evie, we're glad that you're joining us here on this first Sunday of Advent. Uh, She just had to listen to her father sing, and so that's probably why you heard the cries. Actually, no, you sounded good. I appreciate it, Dan. Thank you for your willingness to, to play the song with me. Uh, we have entered the season of Lent. We actually entered it Wednesday for those of us who were able to join at the Sosby's house for our small Ash Wednesday gathering. It was very short, 
and to the point, but we were able to experience some time of prayer, looking at scripture, uh, song, and then we shared the sign of the ash on our foreheads, hearing those familiar words from Genesis, you are dust and to dust you shall return, reminding us of our mortality, but also pointing to our greater hope in Jesus that ultimately this season of Lent, it's not just to be this downer time, it's a season to lead us to the hope of Easter. So often you have to travel through the dark valley to reach the peak where we all like to spend our time. The season of Lent is a time of 46 days, or you hear 40 days, not counting Sundays, uh, uh, that mimic this time Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness. Remember uh, how he spent 40 days in the wilderness preparing for his ministry, and this is when he was tempted by Satan. We hear three temptations. Uh, Lent is a time that kind of mimics, mimics this time in the wilderness of preparation. Jesus prayed. He fasted. He stood toe-to-toe with his demons, and he used this time as self-reflection. And you know what? Lent is a similar time for us. It's a time of self-reflection. It's a time to look at who we really are, to acknowledge our brokenness and our true need for a Savior. Lent prepares us for Easter because we need our hearts prepared for Easter. You know, so often we build up so much clutter in our lives that we just breeze past things. I mean, Christmas often happens this way, doesn't it? It's this beautiful holiday comes along, and then we just blow past it, and we're on to the next thing. And so often we're just, our lives are so cluttered that we miss what's going on around us. So throughout this season of Lent, we are going to be looking at the clutter in our lives, and we're going to discuss what it means to be unburdened by all of this clutter. But before we do any of that, let's go to God in prayer. So let's pray. Almighty God, we do thank you for this opportunity we have to gather in your name. We thank you for this season of Lent. And while this is a season that was invented by the church, it's not one that's lifted up in Scripture, Lord. It is a season that draws us to Scripture, that draws us to you. So we pray that as we enter this season, you would prepare our hearts to accept the beautiful power and truth of Easter. And Lord, that you would help use this time to help us acknowledge the clutter in our own lives and how we can become unburdened. So Lord, as we look deeper at your scripture and the stories there within, we pray that you would prepare our hearts and our minds to receive your word to us. And Lord, I pray that as my words stray from yours, may they fall away and quickly be forgotten, but may your word, your truth, and your promise remain upon our hearts forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray, and all the saints said, amen. So if I were to ask someone at any point this question, how are you, what is the likely reply that you're going to get? How are you? Good, okay, that's a common one. What else do you often hear about that? Fine, good, okay. Outstanding. Outstanding, especially in that tone, right? Outstanding. They say, oh, you know, how are, thing, how are things going? Then you usually what's your follow-up reply? Great. Anybody ever find yourself saying, oh, I'm, I'm good, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just really busy? Anybody said that? 
That's one of my common things. Normally, it's like, oh, we're doing pretty well, you know, because I'm, I'm the kind of person I don't like to go too far because, you know, great, you know, there's a few times that things are really great, but then everything else, you know, you, you got to, it's, maybe it's 90%, you know, we're not quite 100%, so we'll say, yeah, I'm doing pretty, pretty well, doing pretty good, and then, you know, things, things going well, oh, yeah, they're going well, just, you know, really busy, I'm busy. I hear that in conversation all the time. I just, I'm, I'm just really busy. You know, what you been up to? Oh, just a lot of things. You know, just busy. Are you busy? Anybody here busy? I'm retired. You're retired. <laughs> Ellie's busy being retired. She's enjoying that. Well, you know what? I often hear that. Uh, from people in their retirement, they say, you know, I was busier in my retirement than I ever was working, and I thought I was busy then. It's not hard to be busy, is it? And we are incredibly busy people. We are a busy society. I mean, we see people just buzzing around. I mean, you drive around on a Saturday here in Wake Forest, and it's like, oh my gosh, where is everybody going? There's just cars going this way and that, just busy, busy, busy. And throughout the week, when you see people lining up at schools and school buses, people heading to and from work, going here and there, and it's just, you you drive around, you know, I drive around a lot during the day as I'm jumping between coffee shops and places and meetings, and I'm amazed at how many people I see out. I'm like, shouldn't you be at school or at work? Why are you out now? And they're all looking at me doing the same thing. (laughs) Shouldn't you be working? But we're so busy. We have a problem with being busy. I mean, would you, would you go as far as to say that you're just oftentimes just too busy? You feel like you're too busy? You feel like you're too... That's right. I mean, because things just keep coming that want to jump on your calendar. And so you have these good things that come along. And you're like, no, I just, I just can't. I can't take on another thing. I'm just, I'm just too busy. And we know we have this problem. Most people would admit, oh, yes, I'm way too busy. You know, I need a break. I need a vacation. But the odd thing is we still like to celebrate the fact that we're busy, don't we? We celebrate it. We, we often boast or humble brag about being busy or the little amount of sleep that we're running on. You know, oh, I've only had four hours of sleep each night for like the past two weeks. And we say that as if we're, the other person's supposed to be really impressed, like, oh, wow. I mean, you hear this between parents, especially when you got newborn in the house. It's like, oh yeah, we 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 get a three-hour block anywhere. You're doing you're doing awesome. But you know, most parents I'm talking to, you can see the bags under their eyes. That, that yeah, they're they're longing for some sleep, but we still we still like to blag brag about it. You know, we'll even say, well, you know, sleep's overrated. I can sleep when I'm dead. Yes, you can. How many times have you celebrated busyness when talking to someone else? Someone says, hey, you want to come join with us? Oh, I would. I'm just, I'm just too busy. I'm just too busy. We celebrate busyness on our resumes and college applications. The more activities, the better, right? Especially when you're preparing to try to get into college. You, you want to have as many clubs, as many programs, organizations, sports activities, volunteer hours as you can so that you can stand apart from everybody else. And so often we look at the the lives of all these poor children trying to build their resumes for college and you wonder where they even sleep 
where do you even do homework? Oh, you have this block here in between these two activities, and it's, it's busy, and then the parents shuttling them this way and that, and you have kids at different schools, and it's just, it's so busy. We see our spouses so often in passing as we're trading off responsibilities. I know Kate and I are guilty of this, that I'm walking home, one kid's being handed to me, the other one's over there or something, you can find them, I've got to go. And then we're swapping off duties, and we're just ships passing in the night. Our calendars are full, but are we full? Let me ask another personal question. Does it feel good to be busy when it's all said and done? Does it? Yes? You think so? Like at the end of the day, when you've had so much and you've just been overwhelmed, you couldn't fit this and that in, does it feel good to be so busy? Does busy accomplish what you want it to do? Where has your busyness landed you? If you did, if you accomplished things, great. But how many of you are guilty of you, you feel so busy, but yet you felt like you accomplished less? even though you were doing more. Bad planning. There's an interesting quote by Socrates. So this is an old quote. Beware the barrenness of a busy life. Beware the barrenness of a busy life. In your busyness, do you really feel like you are accomplishing more, or are you just more tired and less productive? At the end of a busy day, do you feel full of life? Do you feel ready to take on another day? Do you feel ready to give your best to your family at the end of the day? Or are you just ready to collapse? Or better yet, stick your face in a screen and binge watch an episode of something on Netflix or play a mindless game on your phone just so you can get some instant gratification, or mindlessly scroll through a social media feed, whether it be Facebook, Instagram, whatever the social media platform du jour. What person on their deathbed would say, I just wasn't busy enough? You think anybody uttered that? You know, I just, I wasn't busy enough in my life. We know the effects. We know we need rest, don't we? We need quiet. In fact, we often long for it, longing for this quiet moment of peace. But knowing all of that, why is our busyness becoming such an idol to us? Because busyness has become an idol. Would you agree? Why? Why do we like to stay so busy if we know that we're just more and more exhausted? In other words, what does our busyness really say about us? To best understand the root of our burden, I'd like to take a closer look at an interesting account of King Saul from the Old Testament. It was our passage that Mike read earlier from 1 Samuel. So, If you want to follow along in your Bible, you can turn to 1 Samuel. Uh, We were reading, let's see, what was it? 1 Samuel chapter 13, starting at verse 5. 
We're going to pick out a little bit of that. But while you're looking for it, a little background. We're several generations past where we just had our study in Ruth. If you remember, our study in Ruth was happening in this time of Judges. This is before Israel had a king. And at the end of this time of Judges and the cycle of, of them not following God, falling under the oppression of a, a neighboring nation, and then God bringing about a judge to set things right. There's a season of peace, and then it all just happens again, and it's this big tumbling effect as things get worse and worse each time. By the end of that, Israel's looking at their neighbors, these people that keep oppressing them, and you're going, you know what they have that we don't? What? They don't. They have a king. We don't have a king. And God's going, Okay, you want a king? I'll give you a king. And so at this time, kind of, if, if you want to consider him a judge, more prophet than a judge, Samuel was on the scene, speaking the words of God. And God spoke to Samuel and said, okay, I'm going to give my people a king. king. But before they do it, Samuel even gives them a warning about, look where kings lead us. Give so much power to one person. God is our king. But yet, you want a man on earth? Okay, you're going to get it. But know that it isn't great. And they're like, okay, that sounds great, Samuel, let's go. <laughs> you didn't listen to a word I said? Okay. So they find this attractive young man named Saul. He looks the part of the king. And so he's anointed king over all of Israel. But we see Samuel's warnings come to bear as we see how Saul starts to be corrupted by the power he has assumed. And this all happens through the First Samuel in the Old Testament. In our story, Saul is feeling the pressure of the Philistine problem. So you hear a lot about the Philistines, and, and you hear about it with the account of King David. When he comes along, you hear the little shepherd boy David, and he fights the big Philistine. This is the same Philistines. They are the problem for Israel at this time. So they have amassed more forces and power and are really plaguing this fledgling nation of Israel. Saul is in Gilgal, and many of his forces have fallen back across the river Jordan to join him as they wait for an appointed time for the prophet Samuel to show up so that they can have sacrifices, burnt offerings to God before doing what they need to do to take on the Philistines. And Saul gets impatient. Saul can't wait any longer. Samuel's just taking too long, and so he decides to take matters into his own hands. And that's where we see what he does in verse 9. So here's what he does. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he, and he offered the burnt offering. And as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Samuel went out to meet him and greet him. Here's what Samuel said in verse 11. We have, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattered from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and the Philistines had mustered at um, Mishmash. That's a fun name to say, isn't it? I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself in the and offered the burnt offerings. So we see what happened here. They're supposed to be waiting for Samuel the prophet to come and do these sacrifices on their behalf to God because it was only a prophet who should be doing this prophet or priest. 
and Saul decides, I'm just going to take matters into my own hands. I'm not going to wait any longer. He's feeling the pressure. He's just going to do it. At first glance, this might seem a harsh uh, statement against Saul to our Western eyes and ears. Was Saul really so out of line? Wasn't Samuel the one who was running late? You know, especially in a society where we want punctuality. You've got to be there on time. And Samuel wasn't there on time, so, you know, it's, it's on Samuel, isn't it? Not in this case. Let's take a deeper look. To understand the problem, we must first understand the place of sacrifices. Saul saw them as a ritual to be completed to get the blessing of God. But does a ritual really lead to God's blessing? Is it the act of doing a ritual that leads to God's blessing? No. It isn't some magic trick that we get to do to get God to do what we wanted to do. But that's kind of the way Saul was viewing this. If we just get this done, then God will do what I want him to do to take care of the Philistines and take care of our problem for us. But we see in the context of the rest of Scripture that sacrifices were not meant to be a magical act or ritual to get God to do what we want him to. In fact, we see that sacrifices themselves are not what God wants at all. Psalm 50 has this to say, Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel. I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast at the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills... I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. We hear also in Isaiah chapter 1, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. We see later in Psalm 51, we actually quoted this a little bit in our prayer of confession earlier. But we see the psalmist proclaim the real desire and sacrifice that is pleasing to God. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. See, the sacrifice is less about the sacrifice to be burnt, but the one bringing the sacrifice. Hear that? The sacrifice is less about what is being offered and more about who is bringing that sacrifice and the condition of their heart. And that leads us to our first truth. Our sacrifice to God depends on our understanding of our dependence on Him. Read that with me. Our sacrifice to God depends on our understanding of our dependence in Him. With that in mind, where did Saul err? Where was Saul's problem? Samuel, upon his arrival, is quick to call Saul out as foolish and voices God's displeasure in what he has done in jumping the gun in this brash act. This event 
ends up being the final straw in the beginning of the demise of Saul as God looks to another who we know will become King David. But we see Samuel continue in verse 14 when he's talking to Saul. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Notice his words here. But now your kingdom shall not continue. Perhaps that was the beginning of Saul's demise right there. He started to view it as his kingdom. See, Samuel points to the heart of the matter here. The root of the problem with Saul is twofold. His sin was that of pride and control. He was prideful and he sought to be in control. I mean, that's what, really what he was trying to do with this ritual is to get God to do what he wanted to do. He was in control of the situation, or at least he thought he was. Pride and control. Saul thought he knew better than God the actions that he should take. He got impatient in his waiting and decided to take matters into his own hands. And in his pride, he sought to use God to fulfill his own plans. He was more concerned with building and protecting his own kingdom. And he lost sight of God's. For in the end, nothing is truly ours, is it? Nothing is truly ours. All our belongings belong to God who created them. We are merely stewards of what God has given us. And Saul lost sight of those truths and forgot his place in the divine order. He then loses everything in the end. Not only as a punishment, but because ultimately that is where our pride and striving to be in control of our own lives will lead. God doesn't have to punish that. We end up creating our own punishment. That's where the path leads. There's an interesting quote by C.S. Lewis. He says this, God made us, invented us, as a man invents an engine, a car is made to run on gasoline and it would not run properly on anything else. Now God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it's not there. There is no such thing. Isn't that a great quote? There is no such thing of happiness and peace that we long for in these busy lives that we have apart from God Himself. He is the only one. Our sacrifice to God depends on our understanding, our perspective of our dependence in Him. So you might be wondering about where I'm headed with all this. We're just busy. We're not in our backyards offering burnt offerings to God. In fact, my HOA would frown upon that. I know my HOA would probably love it. Gosh, what are the cherries burning in the backyard again? It smells awful. So what does Saul's disobedience 
have to do with our busy lives? Well, it's our second truth. At the root of a busy life is a spiritual problem of pride and control. At the root of these busy lives that we lead is a spiritual problem. And that spiritual problem is the sin of pride and it's the sin of self-conceit that we could be in control. So how did we make the jump from being busy to being prideful people in need of being in control? Well, it was stated really well by an NC State student who wrote an article titled, Busyness is Not a Fruit of the Spirit. Her name is Ashton Eliezer, and she has this quote I thought was great. Many sins stem from our desire to have control. We're anxious. We crave others' affirmation of our success. We look down on ourselves when we mess up. We're jealous of those who appear to have it together. We don't trust God. We suffer from a pitiable fear that things will go wrong if we're not in control, but it also is a high-handed prideful claim that things will go better if we can plan our lives instead of God. Wow. This is a college student who hits it right on the nail. It's not that busyness itself is a sin. God God doesn't want us to be apathetic couch potatoes. That's not what God is calling us to be. God wants us to live life and live life to the fullest. That's why Jesus came, is that we might have life and have it to the fullest. The problem isn't our busyness, but the spiritual problem that often perpetuates our busy lives. The problem of sin. So, I'll ask you this. If you're real honest with yourself, what are the reasons you have for being so busy? If you really started to dig down, why? Keep asking yourself the question, why, 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 like a two-year-old would, or a five-year-old for that matter. Why? Are you trying to make a name for yourself? Trying to get ahead of everyone else? Are you trying to manage your own destiny? Are you trying to control the future of your children? Are you afraid of what people might think if you aren't seen as being busy enough? Is your busyness more about the appearance than it is about the productivity? It's far too easy for us to follow the path of Saul and let our pride and our need of being in control become our own gods. We forsake our place of dependence upon God, and instead of seeing it as strength, we view it as weakness. See, the dangerous sin often hides in plain sight, doesn't it? So what sins are masquerading as busy success in your life? See, this is the part of the sermon where it would be really great for the next step if I were to come to you and say, okay, here are the six effective ways to reclaim your life from busyness, right? That's the article I would read. Or five strategies for conquering the tyranny of the busy. Or better yet, 
the three best things you can do to find peace in a busy life. Wouldn't that be great if I offered that? And while I must admit there are some helpful strategies out there in various self-help articles and books, I believe they're really only band-aids to the deeper issue. Self-help strategies help to a point, but they assume we are capable of fully helping ourselves. You can't help yourself. It may help for a little while, but the tyranny of of the busy will return because your sinfulness is still there. Paul understood better than most our dependence on God, but he also had a beautiful understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the power it holds in our lives. In his letter to the church in Rome, he lays out a profound understanding of this good news and why it is such good news. And it was because of his understanding of what made this good news so wonderfully good that shapes his response. So let's take a quick look at Romans chapter 12, starting at verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned." And it's here that we find our final truth. To reclaim our lives, we must reclaim our perspective as whole sacrifice and stewards of God's kingdom. It's a perspective change. Understanding what is the place of sacrifice, what is the sacrifice, and who are we as stewards. God doesn't want little offerings. God wants all of you. You are the offering. You are what's pleasing to God. You are what's dearly treasured by God. In fact, what you think you own on this earth is not even yours. Everything is God's. And so therefore, we are stewards of what God has given us. It's not just our possessions that we are stewards of, though. It's our life. It's even our children. Parents, have you ever considered that you are a steward of God's children? Your children, they may look a lot like you, but they're modeled after a divine image. And you are a steward of this life. But the problem with a living sacrifice is that it keeps crawling off the altar, isn't it? Being a living sacrifice is that we just keep crawling right off that altar so we have to keep putting ourselves back on. It's only having a kingdom perspective in our lives that we can ever hope to reclaim this tyranny of this busyness that's all around us. Jesus didn't die so that we would be tired, busy, and stressed out. Jesus died that we might live in hope 
with a greater purpose beyond ourselves. It's our daily and sometimes minute-by-minute task to realign our perspective to see the world through the lens of a blessed steward of God. For when we draw close to God, we will find the true rest and peace that we long for in our busy lives. Amen? Amen. Let us go to God in prayer. God, we do pray that you would help us reclaim our lives from the tyranny of the busy. That we wouldn't be busy for our own purposes, but that we would be busy about your kingdom work in our own lives and in the world around us. Help us to remember that all we have is yours and we are stewards of what you have given to us. Lord, let us never lose sight that the only true fix to our problem is you and you alone. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God forever. Amen.